Well, good morning. Um, Just before I I bring God's word this morning, let's pray. Father God, we pray for your help this morning. We pray for your help as we come to your word together and we seek your voice. Lord, would you speak to us? Would you help us to, to hear what it is you would have us to hear this morning? And would you help us to respond in belief and obedience to you. Father, would you work through the power of your Spirit in our lives this morning. Amen. Well, good morning again, and uh, thank you for joining us online. It's a real delight to, to be able to delve into God's Word with you this morning, and it's my privilege to be able to, to bring you this last sermon in our series in John's Gospel. It's a series that we have been going through since August 2019. I wonder if any of you can remember that far back, but the world was a very different place then. We hadn't even heard of COVID-19. Uh, Zoom was the the sound that our children made when playing with their toys, and social distancing was an oxymoron yet to be invented. The world was a very different place, but thank God that His Word does not change. Its importance and its relevance is unchanged, and it is the place that we can turn to in all the ups and downs of life to have hope in the midst of any circumstance. And it does not give a a wishy-washy, touch-wood-cross-my-fingers kind of hope. No, it gives us solid hope. Many think that the the faith that Christians have is at best nice, but um, ultimately blind. A kind of comfort blanket for the emotionally fragile. Only for people who can cast aside their, their intellect and critical thinking and cling to a fairy tale God. But this book... The Bible and John's book here does not give us empty hope. It gives us solid hope based on real objective historical fact. We who are believers have reasons to believe, good reasons, compelling reasons. As we draw this series to a close, it is this that John impresses upon his first readers. And today we who call ourselves believers remind ourselves of these things. And I hope that if you do not yet believe, you will be challenged by what John says and to consider the reasons that he gives for belief. The title for our message today is this, Reasons to Believe. And and you'll see on on a slide the kind of outline where we're going this morning. So we have reasons to believe from our text in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. And then the final two verses of the book of John, John 21, verses 24 and 25. And the two reasons that I want to focus on are, firstly, the signs, and secondly, the source. But before we get into outlining these reasons that John gives for belief, we need to understand precisely what it is that John wants us to believe. You know, many would have us believe that that Jesus is simply a good man, a wise philosopher, a moral teacher, a prophet even. But, but John goes way beyond that, and he shows compellingly that Jesus goes way beyond that. In the purpose statement in John 20, verse 30 and 31, he tells us that he has written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 
This is what he wants us to believe this morning. And the word Christ is simply the, the Greek for the, the Hebrew word Messiah. The Messiah was God's chosen king, his anointed one. It was this Messiah that the Jews had longed for for many years. And as Jesus steps onto the pages of history, John wants us to believe that this is him. You know, we see prophecies of the Messiah throughout the Old Testament, and, and we, we read, don't we, very often Isaiah 9 verses 1 to 7 at Christmas time when we think about this Messiah coming into the world. And these, these verses tell us that the Messiah would bring light to the darkness. He would bring joy to the nations, freedom from oppression and bondage. He would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He would reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness forever. These verses echo the very promise that was made to David in 2 Samuel 7, where David is told that someone from his own family, one of his sons, would sit on his throne forever, establishing an eternal kingdom. And of this Messiah, God says in verse 14 of 2 Samuel 7, I will be his father and he will be my son. A clear nod to the fact that this Messiah would be the son of God. We see a partial fulfillment of this promise to David in King Solomon, who built the first temple. But as we look ahead, we see that Solomon was unable to live up to this promise. He was sinful and flawed. And under subsequent kings, the nation divided and fell into exile. Their rule did not last forever because of sin and failure. But the promise to David remained. The Messiah was still to come. The Messiah, who would be the forever king that would establish peace and justice, freedom and joy, he would be the king that the Jews longed for, that the whole world longs for. And if we're honest, we still long for today. We know that this world needs the kind of justice and peace and joy and freedom that this promised Messiah would bring. And for us who are not Jews today, those of us who are Gentiles, there is good news that this Messiah is not just for the Jews. He would bring good news, great joy for all the people. This is made explicit in Luke 2 when the angel announces Jesus is coming. So there is hope for the nations that comes from this Messiah. Hope for freedom from the effects of, of sin personal sin, societal sin, and the evil that holds us all in bondage and robs us all of the joy of life. This is what the Messiah promises. But this Messiah, he could be, he could not be any ordinary king. Not even an extraordinary earthly king could achieve what is promised by the Messiah. And we see In the prophecies in Isaiah, for example, that his identity is intrinsically linked to the person of God. In Isaiah 9, we read that his name will be Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And also in in prophecies in Isaiah, we see what things we are to expect when this Messiah comes. Uh, Especially in Isaiah 35, verses 5 to 6, where we are told, Then... The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. 
for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This is what the Jews were hoping for. This is what they were longing for and waiting for. This is the Messiah that they were waiting for. And now John presents reasons to believe that in Jesus, he is here. Reasons to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So let's look at these reasons that John provides. Firstly, let's look at the signs that he provides. He calls these miracles signs because they are, they are signposts to, to point us to who Jesus is, to verify his identity. And, and in John 2.11, we see that the purpose of these sign miracles was not only to reveal who Jesus is, but in doing so, to reveal the glory of God to us, to show that Jesus is God in human flesh. John tells us that he selects only a tiny handful of the so-called signs, the material that was available to him. He says that if every act that Jesus had performed was written down, then the whole world itself would not be big enough to contain all of the books that would be written. But he has selected a few, seven or eight, depending on how you count them. You might say that by John just selecting some? Is, is he not obscuring the truth? Is he seeking to, to provide a redacted or a selective history? But in fact, the opposite is true. You know, it's a common practice today um, among politicians when trying to, to um, disguise a policy which might be unpopular. We, we, we know the phrase of burying bad news, don't we? It's a policy, or it's a tactic used to, to hide something which is unpopular amongst a, a vast avalanche of unnecessary information. But no politician, when they want to present a policy that they know will be a vote winner, uses this tactic. They splash it in headlines, front and center. They put the plain facts out there for everybody to see. And this is what John does for us. He presents the plain facts. He gives us enough information to convince. He does not seek to bombard or overload us, although the material was there for him to use. So what are the signs that he chose to present to us? Well, we have Jesus at the wedding at Cana, turning water into wine in chapter 2. We see him healing a royal official's son, bringing him back from the brink of death in chapter 4. We see him curing a lame man and and making him walk in chapter 5. We see him feeding 5,000 before walking on water in chapter 6. We see him restoring a blind man's sight in chapter 9, raising Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11 before the final crowning miracle that happens after his own brutal death on the cross, his own resurrection in chapters 20 and 21. These, these signs, they are very reminiscent, aren't they, of the words that we read in Isaiah 35? Blind men seeing, lame men leaping, abundant joyful provision being made in miraculous ways, life being restored. These are the signs that John chooses to verify the identity of Jesus as Messiah. And with good reason, because this is what Jesus did when John the Baptist sent people to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah? We see in Matthew 11 verses 4 and 5, Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. 
The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. These are the markers, these are the signs of Messiah. And and one thing that we can note in the signs that John records is both the power and the love of Jesus. Although we see that, that Jesus fulfills all of the prophecies predicted by the, the prophets about the Messiah, it's not as if he is going about running through a to-do list, a checklist of things expected of the Messiah. What he is doing is not mechanical or procedural. It flows out of his heart of love, his deep compassion for people. We see that he is moved by the human predicament at the wedding of Cana. He's concerned for the welfare of the royal official's son. He cares about the lame man and the blind man. He cares for the hungry masses. He cries by the tomb of Lazarus. And yet we see that he is not only moved by love towards people and with anger against the sin that has landed them there, but we see that he has power to do something. He has power to change. His words are powerful enough to turn water to wine, to cause a lame man to walk and a dead man to rise. You know, in these accounts of Jesus' powerful love shown in miraculous ways, we see something interesting, I think. He is clearly portrayed as God and as Messiah, but he does not take people by force. He does not unilaterally change the situation, although, of course, he could. In the wedding at Cana, we see that he requests the obedience of the servants to fill the stone jars with water, which they do. He tells the royal official to go home, your son will live, and the official obeys, taking Jesus at his word. He tells the layman to get up, and he obeys. He instructs the disciples to look for lunch, and they bring back a measly couple of loaves and fishes, which he turns into a feast. He tells the blind man to wash in the pool of Siloam, and he goes. The power here is all from Jesus, but he invites them to benefit from it, to to partake of it even, as they believe in who he is and obey. And he does the same with us this morning. He invites us to listen to his words, to see who he is, to believe, and to obey. You know, when we look through these stories and we we see the, the obedience required, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that that God helps those who help themselves because we we see quite clearly that God here helps the helpless, the lame, the blind, the dead even. We see most powerfully the divine power of Jesus in the raising of Lazarus where he he shouts at a dead man to come out of his tomb and he does. This is an incredible picture of the kind of power that is involved in Jesus saving, in God saving people like me. He has the power to bring spiritually dead people back to life. He has the power to save sinners like you and like me when we can do nothing to save ourselves. You know, these, these are the signs, the first reason to believe that Jesus is the Messiah 
the Son of God. These are the first things, the first reason that we have this morning. The, the second is the source. And this gives us reason to believe that what we have read about Jesus, these signs that are recorded, are trustworthy, that they are true. So who, who was the source? Well, the Apostle John underlines that what is written here was written by him. He wants us to know this because it, it lends credibility to what is written. He tells us that he himself witnessed these things that he is talking about. This is a first-hand account, and it is trustworthy. We see this, this claim made in chapter 21, verse 24, as well as previously in chapter 19, verse 35 of John's gospel. And not only is this first-hand information, it comes from the closest possible source to Jesus. John, who was the son of Zebedee and a fisherman when Jesus called him, he was the brother of James, and together they, they earned the nickname of Sons of Thunder, possibly because of their, their gung-ho attitude and their um, hard-headedness at times. But yet, John got another name as well. He earned the name of the disciple whom Jesus loved. And along with, with Peter and James, he formed part of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. He was witness to the, the Mount of Transfiguration, that incredible moments that so few witnessed. He reclined against Jesus as they ate the Last Supper, leaning shoulder to shoulder with Christ. Such closeness and intimacy is, is unparalleled. He is the only disciple that we know that stood at the cross of Jesus in his final hours as he died and charged John with looking after his mother Mary when he died. And then we see on the third day, John runs to the empty tomb. And afterwards, he, he meets with, he eats with, and he talks with the risen Jesus. There could be no one closer to Jesus to give an account of his life. And we know that when John wrote this text, when he wrote this book, he wrote it within the lifetime of the contemporaries of Jesus. So his account is verified by others. We see, as he writes, we know that this testimony is true. It was open to scrutiny. This is a reliable text. This is a solid reason to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And, and we see that John, he wants us to, to know that he had first-hand account, not just in, in his book in John, but also in his letter. In, in the letter of 1 John, we read him say, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. This is a reliable account. And as a, an aside, it's also important that we note that, G, that John believed in absolute truth. You know, he doesn't give us the option to say that this is true for you, but not for me. This is absolute, objective truth that he is wanting us to, to look at and to, to understand and to believe. Now, we have, we have looked at the reasons to believe. But who exactly is John speaking to? 
Who does he want to believe these things? Well, he is speaking to both Christians and non-Christians. He wants non-Christians to look at the reasons that he has provided and believe for the first time that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And for those of us who are Christians, he wants us to believe and to continue to believe. Maybe you are a skeptic. Maybe you are a a, a non-believer or a non-Christian, and you, you haven't ever considered the fact that there might be reasons, objective reasons to believe. I wonder if you've ever read through the Gospel of John. This would be a wonderful place to start if you are interested, genuinely interested in knowing the reasons to believe. You could do this from the the security of your own home, in fact. Um, If you Google Uncover John, there's a great resource there for looking at the life of Jesus. And if you want some help to do that, please get in touch. We would love to do it with you. But perhaps you've been a Christian for some time. Maybe you've been a Christian for so long that, that maybe you've actually begun to forget why you believe, that there is evidence and reasons for your belief. If you went into work tomorrow and a non-Christian colleague asked you for reasons, the reason that you are a Christian, would you be able to give them a reason to believe, something that is beyond a, a subjective private, personal experience? Could you give them a reason to believe? Well, John wants us to know that there are reasons. He wants us to look again at the reasons to believe. And, and this is something important for those of us who are going through difficult times in our faith. Many of us experience trials and struggles which stretch our faith to almost breaking point. And in the, the the storms of life, it is so important for us to know that there is something solid, something unchanging that we can rely on. And John provides that here. He provides these signs that point to the unchanging truth of who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, we have looked at the the signs and the source. We have looked at who John is addressing but we have yet to deal with the reason for belief that John gives, the motivation for belief. He says that these things have been written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the purpose of belief. This is the end of belief. It is that we may have life in the name of Jesus. This is, this is not a life that is like the life we have now, life marked with sin and suffering, personal sin and societal sin. No, John wants us to take hold of the life that only Jesus offers, eternal life. In John 3.16, we're told that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In John 10.10, we're told that Jesus came to give life and to give it in its fullest. And in John 17, we understand what eternal life actually is. It is not just unending days, but it is a quality of life in relationship with God, 
the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Life lived in their perfect presence forever in a world that has been made new, that has been restored by the the miraculous work of the Messiah, the one who rids the world of sin and suffering and makes each of us right with God, who restores us to right relationship with God when we come to him and believe. This is the goal of belief. It is not merely a, a, a believing in a set of facts so that we might win an argument, but it is believing so that God might win us to himself. Now this morning, if you have not believed, I urge you to, to look again at the reasons that John gives, that you would, you would be convinced because of the compelling nature of the evidence that is there. And more than that, I, I pray that you'll be convinced as God himself takes hold of you and wins him to, your, to, to his throne, to himself. And if you are a Christian this morning and you are struggling, I pray that you would great, gain great encouragement through, again, looking at the reasons that John gives here for belief, that you would know that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is your Messiah, the Son of God, come to earth to save sinners like you and like me. Let us consider the words that John provides here, that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. Let's just pray. Father God, we, we thank you that you indeed sent your Son to be this Messiah, the Son of God, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, who lived as a man, who, who loved people in, in their pain and in their suffering, who had a heart filled with compassion and had the power to change them. Lord, we thank you that today you are this same Messiah for us, that you are the God who cares for us, that you are the God who loves us, that you are the God who comes to us, and you are the God who has the, has the power to transform us the power to save us, the power to sanctify us so that we will be made like your Son. Father, would you help us to, to, to understand the truth of the words that John has presented to us? Would you help us to, to live in the confidence that they provide? And would you help us to, to rejoice in the truth of knowing that Jesus is our Messiah, that he is the one who gives us life in his name. So, Father, would you, would you be with us as we meditate on these words and as we take them into the week ahead? Amen.